0: Well, good morning. As O.J. said, my wife Laura and I, uh, we, we did attend here for a year during the process of uh, engagement and dating. Um, and, and when I graduated college in 2015 from Erskine College, I took a job as a youth director at a small church uh, in Lake Wales, Florida. It's about an hour and a half south of here. And every uh, January, a group of churches would get together for uh, a winter retreat for our middle school students. And I had the joy and the privilege to help organize and lead. Uh, and and Laura, uh, so I was I was organizing and leading this camp. And Laura, on the other hand, came as a volunteer leader with one of the other churches. And I kid you not, after having two conversations with her, one of which was me telling her what game she was leading as she had volunteered to do so, I had a, I had a Strange feeling, and, and thinking something could come from this. Laura left camp and told her friend that something, or that she had met her husband. This sparked a fun, exciting, and romantic dating journey with plenty of trips on the worst highway in America between Lake Wales and DeLand on I 4. Laura was at Stetson University at the time. We quickly realized that the Lord was calling us into marriage and got engaged in April, just a year after a meeting. And uh, we attended marriage prep at, at Herndon. Uh, it's, a, it's a premarital class. We read a few good books on marriage and eagerly awaited our big day. But along this engagement process, we heard a lot of people talk about their marriages, not only at marriage prep, but also among our friends and family. They would make jokes about the fights they would have or tell us about how hard marriage was. And I was super cynical about this and would wonder why everyone talked this way. I would tell myself, that won't happen to us. They obviously don't have the relationship that Laura and I have. We won't be that couple and we will get this right. We really love each other. Now, I wasn't completely naive and I knew that marriage would take some work, just not as much as the other couple's. So we got married, had a beautiful ceremony, the most fun day of our lives, and headed to Mexico for our honeymoon. Week one, not so bad. See, we got this down. Marriage is easy. Then we came home. Work, studies, and responsibilities, life kicked back in. We were married, and oh, I see. Marriage does take a lot of work. I found out Laura and I weren't the most perfect couple and that we were just like every other couple. I saw what they were saying. We both quickly understood and had our eyes open to the reality that marriage does take a lot of work. Now, don't get me wrong. We are happily married, and 11 months in, we not completely understand what is all involved in making work marriage work and healthy. We have figured this all out. No, of course not. But we do realize that it takes effort, commitment. And work, something we couldn't fully comprehend until we tied the knot. And our relationships with Jesus can kind of feel the same way. Married or not, have we woken up to the reality that being a true disciple of Jesus Christ is hard? That there's a lot of work involved in this process of making him Lord over our lives I don't know all of your stories, but for most of us, when we started following Jesus, we were either too young to fully understand the weight of our decision, or Jesus had pulled us out of such a dark place, there was nothing to do but celebrate. There was nothing else to do but be in a honeymoon phase in our relationship with him. Now, saying yes to Jesus is a great thing and should always be celebrated. But have we woken up to the reality that we have an enemy who wants nothing more for us than to lose our hope in him. Thinking to ourselves, Jesus is, uh, have we lost touch with the reality and become cynical in our walks with him as I did in our engagement process? Think, and and uh, this idea that we think to ourselves, Jesus is clearly talking to the other Christians, certainly not me. Over these last few months, we've been taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has painted a clear picture of what it is in following him. And to be honest, he asks a lot. We are called to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, show mercy, be pure in heart, be a peacemaker, be the salt of the earth, not murder, not hate, not commit adultery or even lust. We are to keep the covenant of marriage, speak truthfully, Turn the other cheek, love our enemies, give to the needy, pray daily, repent of our sins, forgive others, fast, not store up treasures here on earth, but rather work for a heavenly reward. Not worry, judge with humility, ask, seek, and knock. We are to pursue and engage him in our lives. Now, if you're a list person, there is your list. But who has this down? Who can check off this, these things on a daily basis? Now, Some things on here, yeah, okay, got that down, no problem. But what about the rest? Not so much. We all struggle, right? We all have a desire to live for our king, but we all know this isn't easy. It is hard. Some days it's easier to hate people, stir up trouble rather than peace, lie, let our eyes wander, and forget to pray. We don't have to try at these things. We don't have to think about letting road rage get the best of us when stuck in traffic. It is natural. But Jesus invites us into something greater. Jesus never promises us that following him will be easy. He only promises us that it will be worth it. Today's passage comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 29. As OJ said, we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, so please follow along with me either in your Bibles or the text is printed in the back of your bulletins. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is God's word. Out of all the ways that Jesus could have wrapped up his sermon, this is how he chose to do it. He uses a few metaphors to help us make four separate decisions that all have a unifying theme. True versus false, right versus wrong. We're to choose between the right and wrong path, between true and false prophets, being a true and false disciple, and choosing the right foundation. The first decision is about two gates, And two ways or paths. One has a small gate with a narrow way while the other one has a wide gate and and an easy way. The latter leads to to destruction while the narrow path leads to life. Now in verse 13, Jesus commands us to enter the narrow gate. This isn't a suggestion. He kindly shows us that there are two options. One of which is more popular as many enter through it. But Jesus' clear pick is the narrow gate. Why? Why? because this is the one that leads to life. This is the one where he enters into a relationship with us and offers us peace, love, and hope. But there is a problem. One is easier than the other. Any guesses on which one? You got it. The wide one seems to me more popular. The text says, many enter through it, just like I-4. It's wide and always packed. But why is this the case? Isn't it the one that leads to destruction? Who would willingly take that path and enter that gate? Well, it's simply easier. That is exactly how the text, how it is, is explained in the text. That is the word that is used to describe this path and this gate. It is easy. It's easy to blow off your family, to mistreat your spouse, to give into sexual temptation, not to worship, not being a good steward of your money or resources, having too many drinks, not taming the tongue and being selfish. We don't have to try hard to find ourselves on the wide road since this is where we feel most comfortable. We have the support of the masses and popular opinion. This is where we belong because of our sinful nature. But the verb in verse 13, to enter, is imperative It is a command. Jesus isn't suggesting this. He is telling us to enter the narrow gate. He gives us a choice and lets us know our options. Just as a parent urges their child to make the right decision, so here Jesus is strongly urging us, his children, to choose the right path. It certainly won't be the most popular, and it will be hard, but it will be worth it. It ultimately leads to life. Jesus then moves into a section about false prophets and warns us against them. Who are they? What makes them false? Jonathan Pennington says this, false prophets are those who, among other things, would mislead people to practice piety along the lines of the broad way, external only, rather than the narrow way, wholehearted. Or as Paul says in Timothy, uh, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, false teachers are those who say whatever the people hear instead of, what of the, instead of what the word of God says. They seem innocent as sheep, but on the inside they are ferocious wolves. In Red Riding Hood, you can at least see that the wolf is dressed up as grandma. But with false teachers, their disguise completely shields their true identity. So how are we to tell whether or not a prophet or teacher is from God? Jesus gives us this answer uh, to that in verse 16. We will recognize them by their fruits. The cue of a healthy tree is that it bears good fruit, while a tree that bears bad fruit has seen its better days. It only remains to be used as firewood. Jesus is saying, look to the fruit. Many will come and many will try to deceive, but the fruit will show people's true motivations. Are they seeking to build a name for themselves and their kingdom? or that of Christ and making disciples. As the saying goes, the apple does not fall far from the tree. So my freshman year in in, uh, college, I took a class on logic. I know, it sounds as bad as it was. Um, And if I'm being honest, I got my first C in, in my college career, and certainly not my last. But looking at this passage, I feel confident in the logical progression Jesus paints here. Good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. Therefore, good fruit, good profit, bad fruit, bad profit. Following, look to the fruit of the ones who are teaching you. Is it in line with the will of God? Are they bearing fruit for the kingdom of God Or for themselves. Be cautious of who and what you listen to. It may seem innocent at first, but there could be something you are not fully seeing. So, not only are we called to choose between the right and the wrong path, we're to choose between true and false prophets. So about five months ago, uh, my wife and I, Laura and I, made the decision to buy a dog. We found a Golden Retriever breeder in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, we, we got to take home a beautiful uh, girl who we named Sunny. Now, uh, we, we love her to death. She is such a joy to, to, to have. She brings us a lot of laughter, but she is as dumb as a brick. <laughs> For instance, we knew that Golden Retrievers have a lot of energy, they need their exercise. And so when uh, we moved from Deland to Orlando, we made sure to find uh, a, a place with a, with a dog park near. And, and so we found a, a home, and, uh, and, and it had its own uh, a dog park. We were so excited. And, and we, we were thinking, oh, man, we can take Sunny to the park, and she can get her exercise. We can throw the ball, and she will just chase it for hours, just never stopping. We'll have to force her to stop. So we take her to the park, and I throw the ball, and she does nothing. She actually jumps up onto the bench next to me and, uh, and, and never chases the ball. She never fetches. This is when we truly understood the loyalty of golden retrievers. They can't leave your side. And over time, we tried teaching her some new tricks and some basic skills, and again, didn't have the best of luck. And then partially the expertise and training from Laura and I is to blame. Um, But also, she just isn't that smart. That is, until we pull out her treats. Once we pull out her treats, she is all in. She will sit when we tell her not to. She will jump when we say down. And she will do everything except obey our commands. But from Sunny's perspective, she is doing everything she should be. She believes that if she does certain things, she will be rewarded with a tasty treat. She doesn't connect that she's supposed to do them when we tell her to. Her motives are simply off. In the third section of this passage, Jesus addresses a group of individuals whose motives are off. They were clearly doing a lot of things, powerful and good things even, but their reasons for doing so did not line up with what God had intended. They were showing off all their tricks to earn an award. When Jesus calls to serve when Jesus calls us to serve him in humility. And this is a tough passage to read because Jesus makes a really tough statement. He says that not all who say, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not all who do things for him in his name will enter his kingdom. But isn't this what being a Christian is about? Aren't we to call on the name of the Lord and do things for him? Yes. Absolutely, but I believe this is not what Jesus is ultimately after here. He's after the heart and the motivation of the things done. Are they for you or are they for him? Do you live for the glory of your name or for that of Jesus? Becoming a follower of Jesus definitely starts with us calling him Lord over our lives. But do we mean it? Is our motive to serve our king out of gratitude for what he has done for us? Or are we doing works because they make us feel good or look good to those around us? For me, the latter latter rings true more often than not. If Sonny disobeys, she simply won't get her treat. But for anyone who does things for the Lord yet truly for themselves, their punishment is far more severe. Which is verse 23 reads, Jesus will not know them. And knowing them in the sense... Uh, knowing them in the sense that he will belong to, that they will belong to him and that they will be welcomed into his presence. Jesus makes it clear that on the day of judgment, on the day when he comes to set all things right, we have to give an account for what we have done and what will our response be? Lord, Lord, look what I did in your name or Lord, Lord, look what you've done for me. And more importantly, what will, uh, will Jesus' response be? I never knew you, depart from me? Or, well done, my good and faithful servant, welcome home. So, how do we find the balance between doing works God calls us to and not allowing them to turn into works done for ourselves? I think it has to stem from a position of humility. The things we do for the Lord and in His name should come from a place of gratitude and thanksgiving for what He has done for us. Only then can we be confident in knowing that whatever we are doing is for the Lord and not for ourselves. Jonathan Pennington again writes, To be a follower of Jesus means a whole person in inward-oriented righteousness. Our work should stem from the righteousness we have already received, not of our own doing. As verse 21 says, we are to do the will of the Father. Lastly, Jesus makes his last and final point of the sermon. After after having taught all of these things from Matthew chapter 5 to this point today, he has landed here. Verse 24 and verse 25 read, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Here we have it, folks. Jesus has laid out his vision for kingdom living. He has made it clear what a disciple of the kingdom of God should look like. Those who hear the words of his and do them are like a wise man who built his foundation on a rock. When the storm rain and floods came, the house stood firmly in its place. And for those who hear the words of Jesus and don't do them are like a fool who builds his house on sand. When the storm, rain, and floods came, the house collapsed, and great was its fall. Jesus is asking this question. What are you building your life upon? What is the foundation of your life? Is it upon your family, your career, marriage, relationships, money, achievements, success? Is it upon the rock of ages or something that initially seems stable yet crashes over time? I'm here today to tell you this. If it is not Jesus Christ, it will collapse. At the end of it all, nothing will remain. Pennington discusses how this sort of language of floods, storms, and rain within the Bible often points to divine wrath, to divine judgment. This passage and all of Scripture look forward to so much more than this life as we know it. They teach about the future kingdoms and about coming judgment. Those who build upon anything but Christ will not pass through this storm. Their houses and kingdoms will collapse no matter how good they look. All that they have built will not remain. Yet for those who have chosen the narrow gate, for those who have listened to the true prophets of God, those who are true disciples doing the will of the Father, those who are the doers of, doers of God's word, are those whose foundations and futures are set. They are the ones who are building the kingdom of God and eagerly expecting the return of Christ. They are the ones who will withstand the storm of God's judgment. This is the hope and the reality of the gospel. I believe that taking a look uh, this this year as a church at the, at the teachings and the life of Jesus has been so good for our church community, but also super hard. If we have intentionally leaned in at any point during this year, we have all felt the weight of following Jesus. He calls us into something extremely difficult and hard. What he requires isn't easy, and trust me, it is so easy to push them To the side. It is easy to find ourselves on the wide path and doing things for selfish gain, but Jesus is calling us into these things. And I ask you have you grasped this reality? Do you understand this, or do you hear these things and believe that it is for other Christians? Certainly not for you. Do you believe that calling Jesus Lord and doing some things for him is sufficient? We all can fall into that trap. But one thing Jesus has made clear throughout his Sermon on the Mount is that there is a real cost in following him. This is real and hard. But on the flip side, the wide and easy path, the one where you choose not to follow Jesus, it certainly may seem easier at first glance. But it too is hard. No one here will disagree that life is hard. The reality is that we are all building a house, a house that that, um, we're all building a house, and it really comes down to this. What do you want to last? What do you want to last? Jesus never promises us that following him will be easy. He only promises us that it will be worth it. Whether you're new to this whole Jesus thing, this is your first time back in church for a while, or you have known Jesus for years, we are all called into this. So where do we start? Where do we begin? This will all look differently for each and every one of us, but focus on one thing at a time, brick by brick. Go back and read through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're like me, it won't take long for you to realize that you have fallen short. Confess your sins, repent, receive grace, and run the race That is in front of you. Ask, seek, and knock on the door of Christ to receive the strength to overcome the temptations in your life. You will have to work at this your entire life to make these things a part of who you are, but man, will they be worth it, both for your life now and for the future kingdom of God. Those who do this, those who put the words of Jesus into practice, actively build upon their foundation, which is Christ Himself. It starts with us saying, Lord, Lord, but it definitely does not end there. He calls us into kingdom living. And when we fail, which we will, just know we have a gracious Father who forgives us of our shortcomings. He knows we won't be perfect at this, which is why he sent his Son in the first place. For every time you have messed up or will mess up, for every time you have sinned or will sin, Christ has died and paid the penalty for it. We can boldly fall to our knees and repent knowing we don't have it in us and can be confident that we will be met with grace. So imagine if we bought into this. Imagine if we as a church did these things Jesus has said and put them into practice. What would our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our communities and schools look like if we did these things? There is a reason Jesus says the word do, make, or produce 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Following Jesus is not meant to be a walk in the park. We are to do these things and he, we are to do the things he asks of us. He calls us into so much more and yes, it is hard, but have we bought into this reality? Laura and I discovered the reality of marriage soon after we tied the knot. Have we, as Christians discover, have we as Christians discovered that following Jesus is difficult? Do we understand and see these things he has called us to? If lived out, do we see the impact it could have in our lives and to those around us? If we buy into this, we will glorify God with our lives and help build the kingdom of God here on earth. We have a purpose and we have a mission Let's not only be hearers of God's word, let us also be doers of it. Let us, make Jesus, let us make Jesus known by the way that we live our lives. Jesus never promises following him will be easy. He only promises us that it will be worth it. Worth it because in this life we have purpose, we have hope, and a peace that surpasses all understanding by knowing we belong to the kingdom of God and will one day walk in his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this year and taking a look at Jesus and His teachings. We thank you for this time and able to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And Father, where you ask a lot of us where the cost of following you is real. The cost of discipleship is is real, and it is hard. Father, I pray for strength, that we can choose the right path, that we can choose to be true disciples, that we can actively build on the foundation. And Father, I pray that we put our hope in that foundation, which is Christ himself. I pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.